Before we get started, I want to tell you all about some really exciting news from Democracy Docket. Since its founding and the beginning, people are constantly asking me what keeps me up at night. And I've wanted the right way to communicate that to you. So Democracy Docket has lots of free resources and articles and case updates. But starting now, we are adding to those offerings a premium offering of two newsletters a month that are written by me personally. One, to tell you what I am focused on that's happening in the courts. What are the cases that have me worried? What are the cases I'm waiting for an outcome? And what are the angles on cases that I think people are not paying attention to? The other will be my take on the state of democracy. What are the insiders in politics talking about when it comes to democracy? What are the angles and the takes on democracy that you may or may not be thinking about, but you'll be talking about tomorrow? Along with breaking news and other premium uh, updates and, and offerings, our premium subscriptions will give you the tools you need to understand everything that is happening in our democracy and in our elections. So go to democracydocket.com and you can click on the, the subscription link and subscribe to our free uh, product offerings as well as our new premium product offerings. Or you can enter www.democracydocket.com backslash membership, and you can go there and sign up now or click in the show notes below. Every day in the news, we see that abortion rights and voting rights are on the ballot and they're on the docket. Abortion rights activist and We Testify founder Renee Bracey Sherman joins me today to discuss the connection between reproductive rights and ballot access. Welcome back to Defending Democracy. I'm your host, Mark Elias. Renee, welcome to Defending Democracy. Hi, thanks for having me. So let me start by asking you, um, you you started a fascinating organization called We Testify. Um, tell, tell everyone about it uh, and how did you get into this work? <laughs> Sometimes I'll say that the, how I got into it was that I had an abortion when I was 19. Um, that's the very simple version, but when I had my abortion, I didn't see people who looked like me talking about it. I didn't see the conversation reflecting what my experience was like. And so I wanted to change that conversation. I didn't talk about my abortion for six years and it felt really isolating and really lonely. And I felt like, I know there are other people who have abortions. I can't be the only one, but how do we create a space in which people who've had abortions feel like they can talk about it, they can be open about it, and when they do that, they receive love and support. So in 2016, um, I founded We Testify, which is an organization that works with people who've had abortions to share their stories at the intersection of race, class, and gender identity. So not only are we sharing our abortion stories, but we're talking about the um, socio-political systems at play, how anti-Blackness and white supremacy and all the things, capitalism, all that impacted our ability to receive the care that we needed and talking about what it was like to have an abortion and let people know you're not alone and you know there's power in your story. Well, it's an amazing organization and I encourage everyone here to go to the website and read more and support the organization. Um, but you 
recently wrote a piece that honestly just like went viral. Like it went viral. I think if it got, if it went viral in my world, it, <laughs> then it went viral in a lot of, in a lot of places. Um, and it's an amazing uh, connection between the issue of abortion rights and the issue of voting rights and democracy. And, uh, you know, we'll have a link to that uh, in the show notes because everyone should read it for themselves. But tell everyone why these two are so connected to you, because I think for many people, they see them as really, you know, both worthy causes, but not really, of you know, interwoven with each other. Yeah, um, this is like my favorite thing to talk about, um, because it's something that I think a lot of people don't think about. They they think about, you know, of course, voting rights and abortion is connected because, you know, bad politicians support abortion bans. But they don't really think about the, the larger history that the anti-abortion movement used abortion as a strategy to undermine and destroy our democracy. They picked abortion particularly because they wanted to be able to um, go after the same anti-Black Jim Crow voting lines that they had recently lost at the Supreme Court when they were, um, they lost school segregation, they lost the right to school prayer, and they lost Brown v. Board of Education. So they couldn't openly advocate for segregation. They couldn't openly um push disenfranchisement because, you know, we just got the Voting Rights Act at that point. And so they needed something to be able to be a lightning rod issue that they could make it and they could they could argue about it within a church under like a, a white Christo fascist system and be still within all of the IRS political FEC laws and, and say, look, we're we're of course not meddling in elections here, but do that, right? They also know that the Roe v. Wade decision in particular was a, a, this bedrock that upholds so many of the freedoms that we hold dear under the right to privacy. And so they knew if they can get some cracks or even break it, they actually could destroy our entire legal system around the right to privacy. And they tried it in a number of different ways. Um, but before that, as backlash to Barack Obama winning an election, you know, we had the Tea Party take over all the state houses. People forget. They think, oh, the first thing that they did was, you know, a lot of these voting restrictions and the gerrymandering. Absolutely, right? They rigged the system so that they could stay in power. But the other thing they did with as much intensity and, and fight was restrict abortion because they wanted to be able to get a, a case, any case, all the way up to the Supreme Court. And they felt like if they could unsettle the ground around abortion, they could make it this fight. They could organize, again, more like Christian white nationalists around this and and really push them because they are deeply concerned about the changing demographics um, of people, people of color in this country. They're concerned that white women are not having enough babies. And I know sometimes I sound like a conspiracy theorist, but 
you think you have to think about the way in which they're trying to retain power and political power. And by doing that is, is sheer numbers and making sure that we maintain an entire system of like a, the old way of, you know, families are man, woman, children, everybody has a role. That's it. No queerness, no trans folks, no anything, no, no interracial marriage, any of those things. Right. And those are all policies that are upheld under Roe v. Wade. And so they knew if they could go to abortion, they could break all of that in our entire system. And it's feeling really complicated right now because politically they're destroying it, but the country is is more liberal than ever. Like people, 80% of this country supports abortion, right? But they've been able to sell this idea that it's confusing and that it's a, it's a, it's people are unsure about abortion because they've been able to show you this broken political system. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And I want to pick up on one of the things you said. I will, I will date myself a little bit, but I, I was in law school uh, at the time of the Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Uh, yeah. This was the early 1990s, and Planned Parenthood versus Casey was one of the first anti-abortion cracks in row. Um, you know, I've I've talked before about how, frankly, I think that too many people on the left were quick to embrace Casey as kind of like a that row was preserved when, in fact, it was uh, it was actually in practical terms actually a, a really bad decision. Um, and I'm not sure that making that treating it as if it wasn't a bad decision was the smartest political decision. But but in any event, I, I remember you know I was in law school at the time. And by the way, just as an aside, anyone who tells you you know because I'm of the age where a lot of judges now go through confirmation. Any any conservative judge who tells you they never talked about Roe versus Wade law <laughs> is just a fucking they're lying. I mean, like, of <laughs> they course, we're talking about Roe weighted law school. It was like it was like everywhere at that time. Um, so, um, uh, but but in any event, I, you know, I remember in law school, one of the arguments that that I would make that others would make. Um, Walter Dellinger, was a, a legendary con law uh, professor, was was my professor at Duke, and 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 one of the arguments that we would make is that, you know, if you undermine Roe versus Wade you are going to necessarily put in doubt the um the um the contraception rights which had been which had predated Roe uh in Griswold versus Connecticut and if you put those in doubt then you actually start to unwind a whole series of right to privacy cases that that go back to you know the right to not have compelled abortions by people who are deemed you know under eugenics you know mentally uh, inferior and you know you put in doubt the ability of of parents to teach their children have them read uh, and learn things that that you know the majority may not want and at the time, we thought we were laying out a parade of, parade of horribles. I've now come to realize this was actually the right wing's wish list. <laughs> you know, that, it was the strategy that, that these things that we this was their strategy, right? Yeah, it really was. I would actually take it a step back because prior to um, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which I believe was a case that 
truly, it really did dismantle. It was the beginning of the fall of Roe. Um, I know a lot of people kind of want to look at just the last decade, but it's been falling apart for a while. But there was a case before that, which was Harris v. McRae. And that is the case in which um, they they went to the court to say that um, Medicaid, folks who are enrolled in Medicaid, the ban on Medicaid coverage of abortions was unconstitutional and that they deserve access to their abortions. And the Supreme Court said no, um, that you can have the right to an abortion, but the government or your insurance should not be compelled to pay for it. Um, to me, that was actually the, the beginning of the undermining of, of Roe because it's basically said you might have the right to an abortion, but you only have these rights if you can afford them. And if you look at it that way, we think about a lot of things in this country in that way. You might have the right to, you know, something, but if you cannot afford it, is it real? You might have the right to vote, but if you can't drive yourself all the way to whatever the nearest ballot box is, because they've removed them from your house and they won't do mail-in ballots at your uh, in your state, then do you actually have the right to vote? I mean, they really are. It's this tying of, of voting rights and capitalism together that is saying that if you can afford something, then you can have the rights for it. Um, it's really scary that they they started, again, there with the anti-Blackness, with um, attacking poor folks. To, to then now get to this point, like you said, this like fact pattern of all of these cases, they know they can get back to things. I will also say when the 2016 case happened, there was a Wall Street Journal article and it was something like, I don't know, ladies stop freaking out. Roe v. Wade is fine. And people, when I would do this work and, you know, years ago and say they, they could overturn this, people like, you're just being really hyperbolic. They talk to us like we we're like chicken little, sky is falling. You know, they're never going to get rid of contraception. Guess what they're trying to do right now? Right? Like this is not a new thing. And, and I think it's really critical that we believe them when they say it the first time. But how did they get this far? It is because they played on people's uncomfort with talking about sex and sexuality and pregnancy and abortion and our ignorance around all of these issues to be able to pass little laws after little laws, these restrictions to destroy access, right? They, they played on people's uncomfort of like, oh, I don't want to talk about abortion. Because I think, you know, both parties have have fault in this. And I know folks get frustrated with me for saying that, but it's true because Democrats have not defended abortion in the way that they should have over the last 50 years because they were like, oh, it's a political issue. I don't want to really want to get in the middle of it. Oh, I don't really know. And instead of treating it like the democracy issue that it is and the human rights issue that it is and the specific issue that the right was going to use to destroy our entire democracy, that, that is where the problem is. There, that is the, the lack of foresight on that is why we're where we are. Okay, so I, I have to ask you this because you talk about this in your article and what you were saying like just resonates 
in the voting arena for me. So one of the one of the arguments I have been trying to make, or trying, I hope I'm making, one of the <laughs> arguments I've been making um, for years now is that people have the wrong conception of voter suppression. They think of voter suppression as an on-off switch. And that, you know, as long as people can vote, there is no suppression. And what they what they don't realize is that voter suppression is a series of hurdles. And sometimes the hurdles are really small, but people trip over them. Sometimes they're bigger and people may be able to get over them, but they're really hard. And sometimes they're really tall and only some people can get over them. And that these hurdles don't hit the whole population equally. So I've said this before, like it would be a tragedy if we had voter suppression in this country that was random. Um, I'd still be against it. I'd still fight against it. But the truth is our system of voting laws in this country are not neutral. They have never been neutral. Um, right now, if you look at who waits in line to vote, you know, next time you see images of people waiting in line to vote, look at their faces. They are inevitably either black or they are young. Okay. Like, you know, we, my team sued Georgia after the primary election in 2020. And here's what it was the data showed in the six metro counties in Atlanta. Okay. These are, by the way, counties run by Democrats in some cases. In the six metro counties in Atlanta, if you were in a precinct that was 90% or more registered uh, uh, black voters, you waited in line an average of 51 minutes. Do you know what it was if you were in the same six counties, same counties, but it was a precinct 90% or more white? You waited in line six minutes. Of course. 51 versus six. Now you understand why they ban food and water in line. Mm -hmm. The people, the white people, they don't have enough time to eat food, food or drink water. There's no line. It's six minutes. So they, in, they put in that in place because it was going to penalize a particular kind of voter. It was going to penalize black voters. Now is 51 minutes, the end of the world for some voters. Yes. For other voters, no, but they may wait in line 51 minutes one time, but they won't vote the next time. Or they'll tell a friend, I'm in a long line now, and their friend won't come. I'll give you another example. Um, you look at mail-in ballot laws. Um, in almost every state where they have mail-in voting, there is a system of signature matching that goes on. So when you vote by mail, you sign the other envelope, then someone inspects those signatures. Well, here's what we know. We, this is data. This is data, by the way, from red states, from blue states, from purple states. We know that the people whose signatures get rejected are overwhelmingly uh, young versus old, minority versus white. And there's some data, by the way, from at least one state uh, analysis in 2018, that women have a higher rate of rejection than men. So literally, if you were creating a vote by mail system that was set to disenfranchise, uh, to set to benefit old white men, this would be the system you'd have. And there's nothing self-evident about it. Like there's nothing self-evident about signature matching. By the way, there isn't a court in America that would allow a untrained person <laughs> to match two signatures that come across their right but yet we have we have come to believe that somehow this is necessary and even in Colorado you know good democratic state in 2020 there were 29,000 ballots rejected does anyone believe there were 29,000 fraudulent votes in in Colorado Truly. does anyone believe there were 290 <laughs> fraudulent votes there may not have been 29 fraudulent votes but yet we disenfranchised a lot of people and what we know from the secretary of state's own data and again a democratic secretary of state democratic state is that of those 29,000 two-thirds of them were from voters under the age of 35 
Washington state, another blue state, we know that black voters had a five times greater rate of rejection than white voters. So I just wonder, as I listen to you talk about uh, voting rights and abortion rights, do you see these, I assume you do, you see these same parallels that even in states where technically abortion is legal, like there is, people will be like, oh, Renee, you're making this up because they can get an abortion, that these policy choices that are made are not, are not, are putting up hurdles and they're hitting some populations harder than others. Um, you are not wrong. Absolutely. I think. One of the things that I have used uh, to explain to people what's going on about what's go with abortion is that if you, I say that you have the right to vote, but I have taken all of the ballot boxes out of your community and said that the nearest one is a couple of days away, you do also have to wait in line and know we're not going to give you time off from work. Do you actually have the right to vote? Because who has time to go do that? That's exactly what happens with abortion. They've gotten rid of abortion clinics. They've shut them down. They're making it really difficult. Then they say, okay, well, you actually have to come back two and three times. You have to listen to this information that's incorrect, right? They actually took the abortion playbook and used it on, on voter rights to just to disenfranchise voter rights. Um, they know what they're doing. That's, it's not like a, it's never about health and safety, just like it's never about making sure it's the securing the ballot and making sure the people who should vote can vote. It's not, they don't care, right? It is about making sure that certain people can get the care that they need or certain people can vote and everyone else has to pay a higher price or go further or go out of state. And the point when it comes to abortion is hoping that there are so many delays that you will just get tired and just give up, which does happen. It happens a lot to people who want abortions but are unable to get them. There's a fantastic book folks should read called The Turnaway Study. It's um, by Dr. Diana um, Green Foster. And it is about people who got to their gestational limits in their state and then were turned away and had to continue the pregnancy and what their lives were like after, right? If you apply the same theory to, to voting rights, just like you said, okay, I vote this time, but I've got a 51-minute wait. To be honest, 51 seems short because I watch videos all the time of people six, seven hours in line. You can't bring food. The police are arresting people for giving out water. That is a human rights violation. Water for these old folks, young people, people with kids. And we don't have a national day for voting. Like we don't, you don't get time off of work. It's, it's mixed in every state. Like the point is the confusion and the point is to wear you down so that you actually won't exercise your rights. And then they can say, see, nobody really needs them anyway. Nobody actually wants an abortion. See, actually nobody votes. So it doesn't matter. People would like to vote, but you're making it really, really difficult for them. And again, they can't vote you out if they can't vote. And, and that brings me to one of the most remarkable conclusions in your piece. Uh, which, you know, honestly, even though I, uh, I think I'm pretty attentive to the issues and I obviously focus a lot on voting rights, I had never connected. So I want you to like take everyone through this step by step. 
you point out that abortion is actually not that divisive a political issue at a at, an ele- at a at like a popularity, you know, like how people feel, but that it actually connects up to wait for it, everyone gerrymandering <laughs> that, that, that gerrymandering <laughs> plays into why people think abortion rights is like a 50 50 issue when it's not yeah okay so i always say i'm like let me see if i can try and make gerrymandering as sexy as possible right so what i was talking about earlier with um the election of barack obama right tea party took over they took over the state houses and with that was the census and so they redrew this the the voting lines and all of the um districts and so what they then did was they they what we say is cracked and packed them and if you want to learn more about this you have to follow tasha um, brown over at black voters matter she's brilliant and we interviewed her on the podcast and talked about her work in the uh, in the um article but they cracked and packed these districts and Cracking them basically means you take large groups of surprise, surprise people of color or um, folks who might vote like Democrats or something like that, progressive folks, and you break them up and you kind of dilute them into more Republican conservative leaning districts. So instead of being, you know, a more competitive district, they'll always lose because they could never have more than 30 or 40 percent. Or there's a version of what they call packing, where they basically make a district where everybody goes into this one little district that votes alike. So cool, you can have one representative and we'll hold all the rest of the seats. And so again, the votes are getting diluted. What that means then is that in states and Congress, people are choosing, or the politicians are choosing their voters instead of the voters choosing the politicians. So then what they did was, because they don't actually listen to the people that elected them, they listen to folks like Alec and Americans United for Life. So they're passing all this model legislation on abortion, restricting access and, and banning it. And it's never been more evident than it has been right now, because there are so many people who are like, Oh my gosh, I'm so surprised. Kansas overwhelmingly voted for abortion. Ohio overwhelmingly voted for abortion and weed. Put abortion and weed on all the ballots, right? Everyone loves it. Abortion is more popular than- Everyone now wants to put it on Florida because they think Floridians and Ron DeSantis' state would vote overwhelmingly for abortion. I love it. Abortion is more popular than your favorite politician. I don't care which one. Pick one, abortion polls higher. It's at 80%. Most people want it to be available, legal, accessible, all the things. When it goes to the ballot, to the people, it's not gerrymandered because they're actually just voting on the issue. And so when you have a ballot initiative, it can go around this gerrymandered system. But then it also tells you how gerrymandered the system is because you've got states like Kansas or like Ohio that have had abortion restrictions on top of each other for decades and the people don't want them. And then in Kansas, what did the politicians do when they came back to office? Tried to pass some more abortion bans because they're actually not listening to the people because they know that banning abortion is a way for them, again, to continue to disenfranchise and to undergird our our, um, 
our right to privacy and get into our homes and our families. There's nothing more intimate than the decision of if, when, and how to decide to grow your family. And if they can get into that, they can get into anything. And so it is very critical that we play both a short game and a long game. Yes, vote, um, you know, support local politicians that you love and that are amazing and push them. But push them not during election cycles, too. But also you have to do that long game work of ending gerrymandering and other voter suppression issues, because at the end of the day, you will always be stuck with politicians who are going to vote against your interest, even when the will of the people is extremely clear. And it's never been more clear than, in my opinion, on abortion, climate change, and also gun control, because we talk about it all the time. And yet somehow we're unable to pass any sort of gun control and children keep dying. The climate is falling apart and we're not able to do anything about it. And it's all because our system is gerrymandered to the point that we actually cannot get these politicians out. So Renee, I can't um, miss the opportunity to ask you. Um, in the last few days, um, there has been a uh, an uproar uh, and the Republicans are hiding under their <laughs> under their desk uh, over a Alabama state Supreme Court, I, don't know, I guess, decision uh, that has the effect of banning um, uh, int- uh, uh, IVF treatments for for couples that are looking to have children. Uh, and I'm just curious, you know, you, as someone who is very close to all of these issues. What do you make of it? Like, what do you make of the fact that the court seemed to go off the rails? <laughs> Did it surprise you? What do you make of the fact that the Republicans initially seemed to not know what to do? Now they're sort of disclaiming their past positions and saying they've always been in favor of IVF. Like, how do you sort this out from a movement perspective, from a political perspective, from an electoral standpoint? Like, what do you what yeah. do you make of it? Well, two things. One, I don't think they went off the rails. This, they did actually what was the original plan. The train is is going to the station it was always destined to be at. Because at the end of the day, a lot of them believe that the way in which to have children is through natural fertility and heterosexual relationships within marriages. That is That is the goal. They've never lied about that. Mississippi back in uh, 2015, Um, And I think we talked about this in the piece that it had both a personhood um, ballot initiative and it had the voter ID. And, you know, the repro movement did not went out for one for the um, personhood against that and not voter ID, which was a mistake. But also the piece about that is that they were always going for personhood. That's what this IVF is. They've just been able to destroy the system gerrymander it so much that they could do this now. So this, again, was always the goal. What I would encourage people to think about is if you're upset right now with the IVF decision, why are you very upset about it now and not when it was happening to people who have abortions? And that is where your abortion stigma lies. And that is how they got you. That is how they sold this. Because for decades, 
They said, well, the people who have abortions, they're expendable. We can we can keep cutting at them. Did you think it wasn't eventually going to come to you? And and they taught you that it, that that they lied to you. And so my hope is that people will then recognize that they were lying. This is the issue. It is all connected. And so now we have to be in solidarity to undo it. We have to recognize that if they come for anyone on their reproduction, whether they're poor, they're black, they're having an abortion early in their pregnancy or later in their pregnancy, it doesn't matter. They are going to come for all of us. And to me, I hope that that's the lesson that people learn here. Um, I think that Republicans might try and hide from it a little bit. Um, I think they're only doing it because it's in the news, but they will go back to it. Mark my words at the RNC. Um, they're going to go right back to it. You're going to hear people. What I mean, truly, when they said life at conception, they weren't saying IVF doesn't count. When they say personhood, they were never saying IVF didn't count. And I will also say that, you know, all the members of Congress are like, well, I support IVF. This, this, I don't support this, right? But they, they signed, they're signed on to the life at conception bill in Congress. So again, they're only upset about it because you figured it out. But they do actually still, they do still believe this. So again, just really recognize the lie that you were sold um, and how, they used abortion to divide us to get to everyone. Does that make sense? It does. It's actually the best explanation I've heard of it. Um, and I encourage everyone, again, if they've not read your piece, to read your piece. Um, before you go, um, you know, it's a difficult time right now. It's a difficult time in the uh, reproductive justice and abortion access movement. Uh, it's a difficult time in the voting rights movement. It's a difficult time um, in our in our country. And I feel like um, many progressives and people on the left and people who are well-meaning, uh, they, they want there to be a quick, <laughs> simple solution. You know, they want this to be, they want this to, they want to know like this is the one thing they can do and have it be uh, have it be solved. So my question is, you know, what do you tell those folks to both give them hope to stay engaged, but also give them a realistic sense that this is not going to fix itself overnight? Like, what is the what is the thing that if someone's listening to this and saying, OK, Renee, so I've heard all this, like, what, how, what, what do I do? Like, how do I engage this? that's realistic, that doesn't leave people in a few months feeling like, oh, wait, you know, it's not all fixed. Yeah, I'm going to tell you what I do to stay grounded. Because it can be very easy to get overwhelmed with everything that's happening and feel, I mean, I, I look at the news too, and I'm like, okay, so how much of this is in my email inbox and on my to-do list? I, I get it. And so what I really think is to take stock of what you can do in your community and with the people that you love. It's going to start in your home. Can you instill the values of reproductive freedom, abortion liberation, bodily autonomy? Your body is your own in your children. Can you talk about that as a family? 
Because one of the things we hear the most is that when people need an abortion, they don't know who they can turn to, or they're afraid that their loved one is going to reject them. So I think talking about it openly will do so much for the people that you love, just starting right there. And then if you have a little bit of time or money, donate or volunteer with your local abortion fund. They raise money to help people pay for their abortions. I volunteer with a, my local practical support group where um, a couple times a week when, you know, when my schedule works, I house people who have abortions or I drive them to their appointments. It brings me so close to the work and it reminds me what I, what it's all for. What am I, what are we doing here? Because it can be really easy to lose it all in the, the battle of like, who's wrong, who's right, and all of that, and forget that there are real people who need abortions every single day at the center of this. I think, lastly, if you've had an abortion, share your abortion story. I, I cannot begin to tell you how much talking about it and showing up for your loved ones is so critical to this work. Because, as I was saying, they've lied to us and said that abortion is this divisive issue and no one likes it and all that stuff. Well, they told us that because few people were talking about it. And as more of us talk about it, we can build those connections and we can change the conversation. So share your story, share who, you know, with people you love, show up for people you love. Um, really just do what's in your community. Is there a local abortion clinic in your community that you can show up to defend? Or I don't know, maybe they need help planting some plants or a, a new coat of paint or something, how you can volunteer. There's so many ways that you can get involved um, to really make abortion accessible in your community. Renee Bracey Sherman, thank you for being on uh, Defending Democracy. Her organization, We Testify, is dedicated uh, to leadership and representation of people who have abortions. Please visit it. Uh, you will learn a lot. Uh, you will have access to resources. I encourage everyone to donate. Renee also has an amazing podcast, which I recommend everyone. And you're writing a book. Tell us real briefly about the podcast and the book. Yes. So um, my co-author, Regina Mahone, and I writing a book called Liberating Abortion, our legacy stories and vision for how we save us. That'll be out in bookstores this fall. Um, but right now you can get a sneak peek of it in our podcast, The A-Files, A Secret History of Abortion from the Media, and wherever you get podcasts. And we have eight episodes and we get into the intersection of abortion and so many of the issues, whether it's um, gender identity and adoption. And then, of course, our episode on voting rights and gerrymandering with our guest, Latasha Brown of Black Voters Matter. So I hope folks listen to it and I hope you learned something. We really did a lot of work to, to try to unpack all of the confusing things about abortion. Well, fabulous. And thank you. And we will make sure to include links to all of that. And when your book comes out, we will make sure to have you back on to talk about that. So thank you for joining us. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Defending Democracy. You can find all of the cases and articles we mentioned today linked in the description of this episode. Look, if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review. We read them all. 
And to find out more and stay up to date on the latest voting rights and election news, visit democracydocket.com and subscribe to our daily and weekly newsletters. And if you want our premium content, you can subscribe to that as well. We'll see you next time. Today's episode was produced by Ali Rothenberg, Gabri Corporal, and Paige Moskowitz. It was edited by Paige Moskowitz. Defending Democracy is a production of Democracy Docket, LLC.